This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. And I am beside myself with joy and gratitude today to have my friend and our very special guest, Ken Wilbur, with us today. Hi, Ken. Hello, my friend. Yeah. So, first of all, thank you for being here. And before we jump into this conversation, I want to read your bio just to give... And I mean, <laughs> this only touches, scratches the surface of what you've done, but I want to share with the audience just a few of the highlights of Ken Weaver. <laughs> so according to Jack Crittenden, a PhD, author of Beyond Individualism, the 21st century literary, literally has three choices, Aristotle, Nietzsche, or Ken Wilber. If you haven't already heard of him, Ken Wilber is one of the most important philosophers in the world today. He is the most widely translated academic writer in America, with 35 books published, translated into some 30 foreign languages. Ken Wilbur currently lives in Denver, Colorado, and is in the process of writing and publishing half a dozen new books. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what makes Ken Wilbur especially relevant in today's world is that he is the originator of arguably the first truly comprehensive or integrative philosophy, aptly named Integral Theory. As Wilbur himself puts it, I like to think of it as one of the first believable world philosophies, incorporating cultural studies, anthropology, systems theory, developmental psychology, biology, and spirituality. It has been applied in fields as diverse as ecology, sustainability, psychotherapy, psych- psychiatry, education, business, medicine, politics, sports, and art. In short, the integral approach is the coherent organization, coordination, and harmonization of all the relevant practices, methodologies, and experiences available to human beings. Wilbur states, you can't realistically honor various methods and fields without showing how they fit together. That is how to make a genuine world philosophy. In 1997, Wilbur founded the Integral Institute, which is the first organization fully dedicated to the advancement and application of the integral approach in relation to contemporary global issues. In 2007, Wilbur co-founded Integral Life, a social media hub dedicated to sharing the integral vision with the worldwide community. In 2014, Wilbur co-founded Source Integral and began developing the Integral Society Initiative, which in collaboration with recognized global experts will demonstrate how to develop human societies in the most comprehensive manner possible. 
Ken Wilbur is Ubiquity University's inaugural chancellor, two years running. Ken received the Humanity Team Spiritual Leadership Award in 2016. And Ken is listed in the Watkins Magazine Spiritual 100 list every year since it started 2011 through 2016. And I saw you were on there again. They just posted uh, once again. So congrats. The latest news, blogs, and writings of Ken Wilbur can be found at kenwilbur.com. And you know, like I said, Ken, the amazing thing is that barely begins to scratch the surface of just how much you've brought into this world. Um, so thank you, first of all, again, for being on the show. And thank you for just uh, everything you've done for us as a, as a people. Um, thank you. Yeah, it, it, really, it really it means a lot. Um, and now that said, we have a lot of ground we're going to hopefully cover. Yeah. Um, so we might as well jump right in. But what I, where I wanted to start with and what I love is, um, I, well, I want to talk about Ken. Ken Wilber, you know, and, and you and sure. your beginning, um, be, you recently had done on Integral Institute um, a really cool, the, the biography video series, and I absolutely loved watching that. I thought I knew a lot about you, but realized I didn't. So, I mean, I know there's a lot of ground to cover, but I would love for you to share whatever you would like to, just kind of giving us a bit of background on you. Okay. Um, well, uh, as, as I sort of looked over... Um, my ongoing um, existence. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's one of those funny things as you get older. Um, I mean, I'm 68 now, you know, so pushing 70. Yeah. And it, it was a standard thing with the boomers that, you know, we, we used to say things like, uh, hope I die before I get old. Uh, <laughs> don't trust anybody over 30. Uh, you know, all, all of those kinds of things. And now, of course, we all find ourselves, you know, kind of decrepit and aged and working. And, and I mean, is there anything weirder than seeing like the Rolling Stones actually <laughs> out there performing? I mean, Keith Richards looks like he's been involved. Right. But here we are. We're, we're still going way past 30. Don't really hope we die before we get old. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, you do tend, I mean, I can't help but notice that you do tend to look back and reflect on your life. Yeah. Um, so in, in terms of just some, some sort of personal aspects, um, I, as I was thinking about it, I thought, well, there's probably, although you can divide this in any number of ways, sure. there's probably three really main events in my life that were crucial. Yeah. And <laughs> the first one was the events leading up to my first book. And that first book was called Spectrum of Consciousness. Right. And as, uh, as, as sometimes it's, it's, it's known that I, I actually wrote that book when I was 23. So I actually got a very, very early start in this whole thing. Um, but it was interesting um, how I did that. But that was kind of, the, and, I, and I'll, I'll get right back to that. Sure. Um, the second sort of big event that covered the sort of middle years of my life was my meeting and marrying Treya Killam yeah. Wilbur. Right. And that turned out having as profound an impact on me as anything that ever happened. Um, it's, it's still hard for me to talk about it. I actually, um, it had been 
20 years since her death. And I had not spoken publicly about it at all until just a year or two ago. And the main reason was I couldn't talk about it without just sobbing. Right. I, I, I just couldn't tell the story without just just breaking down. Tears as much of joy as, as, as anything. And Ken, can I just interject one thing quickly for anyone listening? One of, probably my favorite book. Well, that's hard to say. I love all of your material, but the one book I find myself recommending to re- readers, and just for the audience's benefit, you wrote so vulnerably and candidly about that experience in your book Grace and Grit. So, just yeah. for the audience, I just wanted to interject and share that. Um, please check out that book, amongst your other works. But Grace and Grit is is phenomenal. So please continue. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the second. A big event changed my life yeah. more than anything before or after. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just from a, a completely different dimension. Uh, I I still find it hard to actually wrap my mind around how extraordinarily profound the events were that we spent together during that five year period. Um, we met, we fell in love immediately. I proposed, uh, we were married. 10 days after we were married, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And it was an extremely aggressive form of breast cancer. And it, it, the average five year survival rate for this kind of cancer was 0.0%. So we worked our tails off and we managed to get all five years. We managed to sort of stretch it out just about as far as we could. Um, and we were doing everything, orthodox, alternative medicine, spiritual healing, faith healing, you name it. I mean, it was an incredible um, period. Um, but it was also a period that we both profoundly deepened our spiritual practice. And I like to say at the end, because we were together essentially 24-7, with the one exception where I left to do um, the Longshen Nintig, uh, which was sort of taken on to be one of the very highest uh, transmissions of Tibetan Buddhism. we really weren't apart uh, the whole time. Yeah. And it was originally hard on me because I had to stop writing. And so it took me about a year or so to actually get out of that identifying the standard male identity of I have to work, I have to do this, I have to make it better. Um, that was hard for me, but it was just the beginning of what was hard for me as more and more of my ordinary identity got taken farther and farther away, I just had to keep disidentifying and disidentifying and disidentifying. And by the time I was done doing that, all that was left was just this pure radiant awareness, Mm -hmm. this radical supermind. And I had just dropped away in terms of my own identity. I was just gone. Um, and, and that's in a sense, what we, what we did for each other, um, in, in a certain way, we both, um, 
lived together, and then we both died together. Um, and I think we were both resurrected into a truly enlightened, awakened type of awareness, certainly as profound as anything that I had experienced. Um, and so that was a major, major shift in, in my life. And then I had not been writing for almost 10 years because I, I set that aside to care for Trey. Yeah. Uh, and then I finally started writing again. And the first book that I wrote was Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, which is, is sort of taken as my magnum uh, opus. Um, and I think it was a very important book for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, but that was the third sort of major um, event in my life. And when it comes to the first one, the spectrum of consciousness, after I had sort of broken through on the central concept of that book, which I'll explain now. I, mean, I can yeah. just, I just kind of jump into that period. Man, I was brought up um, to believe entirely in science and uh, mathematics and logic and all of the standard horrifying <laughs> scientific materialistic, you know, um, and I bought it. I just thought that was the greatest. Um, I built laboratories in my basement. I bought books. I um, signed up in science fairs. Um, I won a ton of awards on those things. I just loved it. I just soaked the whole science atmosphere in. And I was always told that I would be a doctor and that I would go to Duke University. Because my mom is from the South. And Duke University is taken to be the, quote, Harvard of the South. Sure. So that's where it was always understood that I would end up going. Um, and so I, I did. Uh, and as I went to Duke University campus and went in my room and sat down on the bed and took one shoe off, by the time I took my second shoe off, I knew I wanted nothing to do with any of it. Wow. And now this was a huge shift because I was basically, well, you could call kind of a goody-goody, kind of the fair-haired, golden, all-American boy. Yeah. I wouldn't rebel or do anything bad or nasty. My parents adored me. I was valedictorian. I even managed to be captain of the football team. <laughs> This is a guy who's not going to cause any sort of waves yeah. whatsoever. This is a guy you could count on just to support America and to support, you know, uh, all the good things that this country stands for. And by the time I walked into Duke University and sat down, I just completely dropped it. I wanted nothing to do with it. And so... Here I, I've been a straight A student I, since fifth grade. Yeah. I hadn't even gotten an A minus. I mean, it was ridiculous. Um, and so I went to school 
to classes on the first day and made friends with somebody. And then I would say, look, uh, contact me when we're about to have a test. And so I stayed away from class until I would get contacted by these friends. They were saying, oh, we're having a test next Tuesday. So I say, okay, and I'd show up to take the test. Didn't study for it, knew nothing about it, sort of fake my way through it, and usually get a B minus or maybe a C plus, something like that. But it was alarming to my parents because, again, I'd never gotten even an A minus. Right. And, and they used to describe my report card as the most boring report card you've ever seen. Um, and then all of a sudden they're getting report cards that have, you know, B's and C's and all that kind of thing. And they were totally um, alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, I just couldn't pursue science anymore. All of the questions that science answered were important. But they weren't questions that really spoke to what was crucially important for me. So all the silly questions, who am I? Why are you here? What does it all mean? Why, you know, should, what should we be doing in this world? And so I began, this was in 1967, 1968. Uh, the Summer of Love mm -hmm. in San Francisco, there was this huge influx of Eastern traditions, yeah. and I had never seen any of those. And I started studying those and just was completely blown away. I couldn't believe that there were these traditions that were answering exactly the questions that I most wanted to know. Yeah. And so I sat around and do, for the next several years, I drank beer, I chased women, and I read incessantly. I studied Zen Buddhism and Vedanta Hinduism and Taoism and all of that. And from there, I immediately spread over to Western versions of it. I read uh, Christian contemplative uh, practices, uh, Islamic Sufism, uh, Jewish Kabbalah. Um, I studied Freud and Jung and all of these. And I had done this because I started out and I was very unhappy. And so one of the reasons I started studying all of these various areas was that I wanted to get from unhappy to happy. And the more I started studying all these different areas, the more they all disagreed with each other. And I found that just infuriating because now I wasn't just unhappy, I was confused. <laughs> and I thought, well, now nah, this is swell. Um, but I figured the only way I could get from unhappy to happy was I now first had to get from confused to unconfused. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of grouped all of the uh, material that I was reading and it just, just uh, looked at it from one particular way, which was uh, in terms of what you might call self-improvement or 
um, self-betterment or even something like uh, self-realization. And there turned out to be about six or seven major classes of different types of self-improvement. So psychoanalysis, for example, said strengthen the ego. Zen Buddhism, on the other hand, said get rid of the ego. And so I was kind of, okay. And so I just go from group to group, and they all just had complete disagreements with each other. And again, this was just infuriating to me. And so I just, I kept studying that and studying that and studying that. And one day it dawned on me that of these six major schools of self-improvement, that they weren't all dealing with just the same basic level of consciousness. The consciousness was actually much more like a rainbow. It was a spectrum Mm. of different levels, a spectrum of different uh, types of identity and awareness. And um, the spectrum ran from very narrow identity to larger identity to larger identity to larger identity. And so I identified about six of these major levels. And as a simple example, um, I'll give just sort of the three major levels. Great. One was, what was it that psychoanalysis did? Why was that important? And the way I summarized what psychoanalysis did was, it takes a narrow and sort of inaccurate self-image, which we call the persona. Mm-hmm. And the persona was narrow and inaccurate because it split off or repressed something called the shadow. So on the other hand, if you took the persona plus shadow and you reintegrated them, then you got a whole and healthy ego. And that was what psychoanalysis was after, was a whole healthy ego. So that was one kind of major area of of self-improvement that they had. But then at about that time, this was again in the 60s and 70s, a whole school of humanistic and existential psychology came along and said, okay, well, that's okay. But there's an actually, there's a deeper split that causes human unhappiness. The deeper split is, even if you have a whole ego or mind, that mind itself is split from the body. Mm. And that body-mind split is what causes suffering. And so what we want to do is get back to a unified mind-body total organism. And they maintain that very aggressively and very strongly. So um, I looked at that and said, okay, well, here's yet another view of the spectrum. That psychoanalysis went from taking a persona and adding shadow and getting a whole ego. And then the humanistic psychologies went further and took the whole ego or whole mind and united it with the whole body to give a total 
psychophysical organism. Mm. And I gave uh, the term centaur to that after the mythic being that had a human head and a horse body. So the fact that it was one being meant that the mind and body had been integrated and it was just one uh, unified togetherness. And so they maintained that that was what um, was the true, authentic self of a human being, was their centauric self. Not ego, not persona, but centaur. And so that made sense to me, and so I sort of marked that down on the levels of, of ever greater identities. But then there was an even larger one. Uh, and this was represented by the mystical traditions, the great Zen, the Danta, Taoism, because they maintained that there was a still deeper split. And that was the split between the total organism itself and the rest of the universe. That there was a split between the separate self versus everything else out there. And then if you went deeper, you could find an actual unity between self and world. And so that would give you an ultimate unity consciousness or a sense of total oneness or a mystical union. And this realization of of a pure unity consciousness was called enlightenment or awakening or satori or moksha and so on. So we had this spectrum of increasingly larger identities, going from a narrow persona and then move down and unite persona and shadow to get a whole ego, Mm -hmm. and then going further, take the whole ego and unite that with the body and get a whole centaur, a total psychophysical organism. And then going farther yet, take the whole psychophysical organism and unite it with the entire world to get a true radical oneness, a true unity consciousness. And so if we take those three or four major levels and then add, um, there were sort of levels that were transitional between them, we ended up with six or seven major levels of identity. And that turned out to be a a pretty uh, uh, accurate map for the various types of identity that an individual could have. Mm -hmm. And the reason that there were these six or seven major different schools of psychotherapy or liberation or self-improvement is that they were each addressing a different level of the spectrum of consciousness. And they were right as far as their level went. And so putting all of them together, we got a true view of all the different types of uh, self-improvement therapeutic uh, um, endeavors you could get uh, involved in. And so that turned out to be... um, a fairly, um, 
Well, it got a lot of critical success. Um, I was 23 when I wrote the book, so I, I began when I was quite young. Um, got the book out, it got an enormous amount of, of critical success, yeah. and also um, was, a, was a popular success. And, and so as just sort of this you know, young kid, I was kind of catapulted overnight into a semi-famous you know, person. Uh, and that ended up kind of starting my, my career. Um, I had come out of graduate school in biochemistry. I'd come out of medical school in Duke. And I wanted nothing to do with either one of those. And so at the time, um, I had just gotten married. And this was during the 60s. So there was none of this male has to support female patriarchal thing. So we just had to split expenses. So I said it was fine, but I had to go out and get a job. Yeah. So I ended up getting a job at the Red Rooster Restaurant in Lincoln, Nebraska, which was the finest fried chicken in the five states. And it, it was like, ah. So here I was washing dishes and bussing tables and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And no matter how much the critics might be saying, oh, we've got, you know, this guy can be compared to Hegel or Freud or even Plato. Try working as a busboy. <laughs> <laughs> and you have no room for a swell head. Sure. I mean, you are on the lowest of the lowest <laughs> of the totem pole. And absolutely anybody can give you commands. Even the potato peeler can tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up doing that. I did it for almost 10 years. Uh, but I also wrote a book every 10 years. And that's kind of how it got started. Um, and at the end of that period, a group of people from Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, contacted me and said, we want to start um, a serious academic journal based on your work. Uh, and I said, well, uh, okay, what's required? And they said, well, at least right now we're going to need you in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where we publish it. My wife at, at that time um, was manager at a B. Dalton bookseller. Yeah. She had just gotten a promotion in Kansas City. So she was going to have to go to Kansas City. I was going to have to go to Cambridge. And we realized that we were just going to have to have to separate. We've been together almost 10 years. We've been married 10 years by that time. Um, when we realized we were going to split, we sat down on, on the sofa, held hands, and cried for half an hour. I mean, we really did care for each other. Sure. We finally went in to a lawyer's office. We were holding hands and smiling. And uh, I said, we need to get a divorce. And she said, well, I can't represent both of you. 
And I said, what? And she said, it's illegal. So the lawyers want you to each get a lawyer so you'll fight. And they yeah, think, yeah. You know, it's so horrible. So I said, okay. So I flipped a coin. Amy won. So I said, okay, you're her daughter. I mean, you're, you're her uh, lawyer. Do you mind if I stay? She said, well, it's okay with her. So she said, okay, we have some lists to go through. Um, how about um, children? No children. Okay, how about pets, dogs, cats? We don't have any of those. Okay, how about property? You have to. And we said, no, we've already divided property. And she said, well, God, that apparently, well, I think that's it. And I said, okay, how much, how much do we owe you? And almost crying, she says, I don't know. I've never done it this way before. <laughs> so um, she said, how about $125? I wrote her a check for $125. We held hands, walked out, and that was that. So I ended up in Cambridge, and um, Revision Journal uh, was doing well. And everybody told me that I would really like Cambridge. Um, but I really, I really didn't like it that much. Um, I used to complain that people confused the sound of grinding teeth with thinking. And it was just, it was just a little bit too intense. And so I was on the phone almost daily to my friends around the country saying, get me the hell out of <laughs> me out if you do anything I'm doing get me out so about a year later I uh, moved to San Francisco mm -hmm. uh, and stayed with Roger Walsh and Francis Vaughn uh, in in uh, in their lovely lovely home in in Tibra north north uh, of San Francisco um, and then they introduced me to Trey and I was in my mid-30s by that time. And so we met, you know, fell in love, and that started the second part of my uh, life stuff. Um, so uh, we can talk about that or take that as enough uh, personal <laughs> stuff for me, and we can move on a little bit. But no, I would... I would love to just chat a little more about that. I mean, you know, we're going to get into sure. the trauma, addiction, healing, and things of that nature, which is what often this show focuses on. But I, 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 I'm just, like I said, so fascinated in, in your story. And so I would love to hear a bit more if you're willing to share. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Sure. Yeah. Uh, have any, any uh, specific ideas? Yeah. So, I mean... I mean, you, you shared uh, about Treya, and, and thank you for that. And, and I know that, like you said, that that's been very tough, um, right. but that you've come, been speaking a bit more about it. And so after after Treya, um, you, you wrote Sex, Ecology, Spirituality. Right. I mean, a huge, what was it, 800-plus page book, phenomenal. Yeah. If, if you want to just, I guess, kind of in a nutshell talk about from from there to here and i am sure that's a, a very difficult task because again i know how or kind of know how much you've done but maybe if you want to just bring us up to date from from there to here um however right. you you feel comfortable doing so well the five years with Treya, um 
the first year or so was the first time in my life since I was age 23. Now I'm, you know, 33, 34, been, you know, 10 years. And I had done, you know, kind of a book a year. Right. And I was really adapting to this new profession, this new life, this new persona. Um, this is not what I planned on doing. And so, um, and yet I kept having these ideas and I would put them down and people would say they helped them and they seemed important. So I would keep writing the books and they, they, fortunately they, they really did very, very well. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so all of them kept coming out, uh, all of them to this day, uh, over 25 of them are still in print, which yeah. is kind of unheard of. Um, and so I was doing that, but as soon as Treya got ill, then it really forced me to drop that whole persona of, you know, the writer and doing stuff and making things okay from my work. And of course, this is an extremely common problem that men have. We tend to identify with our doing. Mm, sure our being so much and so this was just a sheer withdrawal of actions that if you want to you can even think of as 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 an addiction i mean i had to you know drop something that i had done literally every day of my life for the last 10 15 years and stopping that was one of the single most difficult things that I've done. It just ate me up. I mean, I and and as much as I've had sort of you know Zen practice and and Christian contemplative prayer, and I had all of these tools to help me accommodate to these changes, the changes were really overwhelming. And, and it became a profound learning lesson for me to be able to drop that and simply give my life to this woman. Yeah. And because I loved her enormously, I found ways that I, I could do that. Now, there was about a year, year and a half, where it was very, very difficult on us. And at one point, I even uh, got almost suicidal. And I remember driving into a, a gun store, frankly, and walking through looking for a gun to get. And I, so I looked at shotguns and I thought of Hemingway, you know, so I thought, well, maybe I'll try a Hemingway. And then I looked at other types and thought, well, okay, that was, you know, another famous author killed himself that way. And um, it was a devastatingly difficult time for me. And we were also then facing the one little difficult characteristic that Treya had, which was that. When you have cancer, 
that kind of becomes your trump card for every argument you have. So no matter what argument we had, it always ended up with her saying, but I have cancer. And that just ended anything I could say. I just couldn't see how to get around something that horrible. And whatever problems I had were minuscule compared to hers, but that didn't make them go away. And so I was still facing these incredibly difficult issues. And finally, at one point, we were, she was sitting in my desk area and flapping the newspapers. And I said, well, please, please leave my own desk area and go someplace else. There are eight other rooms in this house. Please find anyone. And she said, no, I don't think so. And, now, and she's not that kind of, you know, nasty person. This was some of the very few times when she did this. But it, it infuriated me. And I walked up to her and I said, what do you mean you won't move? I mean, this is my area. You know that. And she said, well, I'm comfortable here. I want to read my newspaper here. And I got mad and I slapped her. And I slapped her again. I didn't punch her or anything like that, but I slapped her again. And she kept screaming, stop hitting me. Stop hitting me. And this was such a shocking occurrence. Certainly for me, I couldn't believe that I had actually done something like that. And she couldn't believe that I was doing it. We both knew I had never done anything even vaguely like that before. And I finally said, that's it. I'm leaving. I'm going back to California. I'm going back to San Francisco where our friends are and our support network is, and so on. And so we were living in North Lake Tahoe at the time. So it was a very posh arrangement, and it was just killing us. And so I literally got up, got in the car, and drove back to San Francisco. And the next day, she followed. And that marked a real turnaround. All of a sudden, we realized things could get that bad, and we were going to have to really work to change it. Now, fortunately, both of us had a great number of tools that we could use to help with this if we actually applied them. We both had been practicing meditation for 15 years. Um, I uh, uh, knew an enormous uh amount about psychotherapy itself and how to do it and how to apply it. And I was starting to do that. And so we slowly started turning things around and turning things around and turning things around. And it literally, that's the point where we started to learn lessons, powerful lessons almost daily. And we started to have Satori-like experiences almost daily. And I, I've been around Zen for at least 15 years. I knew Satori's. I knew little, small, kind of fake Satori's. And I knew great, big, huge, serious Satori's. And we were having serious Satori's. And so we were changing. This was a powerful, powerful 
process that had started to overtake us. And it did because we had an authentic love for each other. Mm-hmm. That's what made it work. It, whatever else happened, we never stopped loving each other. Yeah. And so that grew and that grew. And then it just got better and better and better. Now, unfortunately, her cancer got worse and worse and worse. And so we went through the absolute most aggressive forms of chemotherapy, adromycin, which is absolutely brutal. Um, We did every conventional medical procedure recommended to us, and they all failed. And so that left us with just the goofy world of cancer cures. And they are insane. There are faith healers. There are snake oil salesmen. There are people with machines that can zap your cancer for you. There, I mean, it was just one of these gimmicks after another, after another. We investigated a lot of them. None of them were. And so we finally got desperate and ended up going to the Yonker Clinic in Germany. The Yonker Clinic gets in the news every now and then when people like Bob Marley went there and died. Yul Brenner went there and died. But they give chemotherapy that's so intense you have to be kept on life support systems. It's that frightening. But we went and we did that. And at first they thought it was working. After five or six months and several of these treatments, the tumors were still growing. So we were sent home to die. And that's what we did. And so we started at this point practicing things like the Tibetan Book of the Dead, we actually started getting ready for the transition of death into whatever might be on the other side. And the Tibetan tradition is very, you know, full of these kinds of things. And so we pursued that um, seriously. We talked to many of the really great, great Tibetan teachers and we began these kinds of, of, uh, of practices. And as she got worse and worse and worse, and it came right down to the last few months of, of her life. Um, uh, just all of this was us opening more and more and more to deeper and deeper realities in ourselves. We just got caught in an ever-enlightening process. It just took us deeper and deeper and deeper. The evening she died, I could tell that she was going. I called her family in Texas. They all jumped airplanes. Every one of them made it here in time. We were all around the bed, and she kept getting fainter and fainter and fainter. And then right before she died, she said, 
It takes grace, yes, and grit. And that summarized her better than anything I could think of. So that's that's what I called the book that I wrote about our idea of grace and grit. Um, and then she finally passed. And I made arrangements to stay with her that night. And I read favorite sections from all of her spiritual teachers, St. Teresa, uh, Meister Eckhart, uh, St. John of the Cross, um, Zen masters, uh, Tibetan Buddhist, uh, Kabbalah, Sufism. And about two o'clock in the morning, I was reading one of these sections and I heard this unmistakably sharp crack. And I just knew that she had achieved the great liberation. I knew that she had been released. It was just somehow unmistakable that that is what happened. And after that happened, it's as if she'd been turned around and transmitted that realization to me. And we both sat there in bed that night in radical unity consciousness. Absolutely blissful, absolutely ecstatic, absolutely timeless. And it just washed all of the horrible experiences out of, of what had happened for all of us. It was, it was astonishing. And then finally passed on. I stayed in that state um, close to several months, day and night. Um, it was just that profound. Um, and so that had such an extraordinary impact on my life. Like I said, I've never seen anything like it before or since. It, I mean, it's the single defining event of my, of my life. And even though I only knew her for five years, I am so thankful that I had those five years. I mean, I could have had five weeks or five months. And five years is wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful and changed me forever. Yeah. So. Oh, thank you for sharing so candidly about that. Um, you know, obviously, as I said, I've read the book a couple of times, but to hear you talk about it, it's, it's a different transmission, of course. So thank you for that. Really yes. appreciate it. And that's, that's what we talk about here is this healing journey. And that obviously was quite a bit of not just your awakening, but your healing, you know, and in, in your life, uh, extraordinary and beautiful. And so we are, we are going to jump into this other material, but now just to, just to, to present day, here we are 2017. And, um, I know you're working on a, on a whole lot of material, um, Integral Meditation just recently came out, The Religion of Tomorrow. Another 800-plus page book is coming out. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that before we 
jump into uh, this other material? Uh, sure. And which book was that specifically? Uh, if you, you could talk about both, if you want, the uh, Integral Meditation, which just recently came. Well, right. not recently, but semi recently, right. and then also the Religion of Tomorrow, which is coming out, I believe, in May, if I'm correct. Um, well, let me say that um, as I began just trying to sort of um, keep expanding yeah. the areas that an integral approach could could include, and it just it started to become really important to, I mean, if you look at most of the approaches that human disciplines now have, it's that they pick one approach, and they think that that's right, and then they look at all the other dozens, even hundreds of approaches, and they simply pronounce them all wrong. If I'm right, you can't be right. Or religions do the same thing. If you can only come to God by way of Jesus Christ, then you can't also come to God by way of Krishna. I mean, pick one or the other, and both can't be right, at least not the way they're stated. So I was thrown much more into not, if you look at a dozen approaches to reality, not which one is right and how are all the others wrong, but how could the universe be created such that it allowed all 12 of those to exist. They must have some degree of truth, at least a little bit. And I sometimes say it's because no human mind, no human brain can produce 100% error. Mm. It just wouldn't work. I mean, I summarize it by saying, Nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and, and it's true. So, okay, so we're not trying to say, okay, which one is true and all the others you can go home now. We're trying to say, okay, what structure of reality allows these to be partial truths? That's getting closer to what's going to be real. If anything is, it's going to have to be something that makes room for all the true but partial truths. And that's not a common approach. Not many people look at it that way. For whatever reason, I'm constitutionally incapable of of looking at it any other way because it just seems too important. What we call aqual, like all quadrants, all level, all line, all states, all types. Those are just elements that our research has showed us are important ingredients in human 101. And although all of these elements have an extraordinary amount of research backing them, by far the majority of elements in them most people don't know about at all. And so that makes it very strange. For most people, human 101 is really sort of human one-fourth. It's just, you know, it's it's alarming. Um, But we don't see, you know, these developmental 
uh, stages looked at hardly at all. Um, we don't uh, see states of consciousness. If you're in spirituality, you probably know a little bit about this. But if you're not, if you're in either ordinary religion or just the rest of the population, you have no understanding of what an enlightenment is or an awakening is or waking up or moksha or metamorphosis or the great liberation. And yet these are the greatest treasures that humankind has. These at least purport to be access to ultimate truth. Now, relative truth is something that science does well with. So relative truth is water is made of one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms. That's relatively true. Right. None of the traditions deny relative truth. That, that's important. But ultimate truth is, Vedanta will look at it and say, well, wait, water has oxygen and hydrogen, but oxygen is made of Brahman, and hydrogen is made of Brahman, and that's what the ultimate reality of it is. And when you discover that reality, you're also discovering your own true nature, your own deepest self. And that conveys a meaning, a depth, an understanding, a value that dwarfs one oxygen and two hydrogen atoms. And so we say, you know, they're both important, and we mean that. But if you look at all the truths that Western culture is built on, they're all relative truths. We are somehow pushing a culture along that has no access to ultimate truth. There are uglier ways to say that. It's based on lies. <laughs> it's based on relative lies. It doesn't get at ultimate uh, um, reality. Hmm. And so, I mean, I remember in my late teens, when I first stumbled on, in this case, it was a book on Zen. And I finished reading it, and my response wasn't happiness. It wasn't, oh, I finally discovered this. Oh, this is, wow. You know, my life is going to make sense. This is wonderful. My immediate response was rage. Because I looked at it, and I said, I'm 18 years old, and not a single person, not an educational system, not a class, not a book, not a mentor, has told me this truth. How am I supposed to live my life for 18 years without knowing the truth? All I know are relative little 20 things that don't have any meaning at all. 
So I was infuriated. I mean, I couldn't sleep. I woke up. I was growling. <laughs> Actually, growling. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I, I was flabbergasted. Yeah. So that's a bit of a problem. And so what we in particular want to do is be able to take the truths of the great traditions. And part of their problem is that, because what we've realized now is that your spiritual experiences, no matter how profound they might be, whether they're you know uh, an experience of absolute oneness with the entire universe and love and bliss, that's still interpreted according to the stage of growing up that you're at. So your waking up is interpreted according to your growing up. Yeah. And so that is a, is a very important piece of, of information. And so that's something that we have to start watching um, as well. So we have that going along. What we're trying to do is, is make these truths fairly palatable, that, that make some sort of sense to the average person that doesn't freak them out. Um, they don't think that you're working with somebody that just dropped acid or got out of the mental institution or, you know, some other loopy thing. Uh, but we, but we want this to be included as just a part of our overall view of reality. We don't want it to dominate or overwhelm, but we don't want it to be overlooked. That's like saying, oh, by the way, the ultimate secret answer that explains all of this, we're going to put that aside. Yeah. You know, let's not worry about that. Right. Um, so... So it's a real, a little bit of a turning point here. And that's what we want to do is try and find ways to take spiritual truths and continue to update them in ways that don't deny their fundamental dogma, but to show deeper ways that they can be interpreted that continue to make more sense than they are now. So we want to, if you look at something like in Christian dogma and you look at items such as Abraham's wife was really turned into a sack of salt or Elijah got his chariot and was really taken straight to heaven while alive. Um, that Jesus Christ was actually born of a biological version. And that's important. Um, that's one set of truths. But if we start looking at how we interpret our religious experiences, then those can start to make better sense out of these claims. And in particular, they can start to make sense to the modern and postmodern world. So, you know, right now, frankly, religion 
particularly what James Fowler called the mythic literal version. This is one that looks at the Bible and says absolutely everything in the Bible is literally true. Well, it turns out that's an actual stage of religious development. And James Fowler has abundant research that individuals go through around six major stages of religious faith. And that the lower stages are really big and they're like myth and miracles and walking on water, healing the dead, uh, loaves, fishes, water, wine, all of these sort of miraculous uh, events. And if you continue growing, so that your mind's interpretive capacities keep growing. Then you start to interpret your religious realities, not in terms of magic ways of understanding it, but more mythic ways of understanding it. And so you can can continue to follow those. If you keep growing, then you'll start, you move up to even more interpretive tools And you'll start to interpret these religious truths based on more world-centric, post-conventional ways of looking at truth. So first of all, Jesus Christ isn't the one and only Son of God. And then if you have an experience of him, then you're experiencing the one and only God-given only to your special group um, that owns the one and only true God. And instead you see Jesus Christ as a very important world teacher among other world teachers. And so if we look at the general developmental scheme, even though there are around six to eight levels stages of that they can be summarized in 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 around four major ones which go from egocentric or selfish to ethnocentric or care where the person extends care from just himself to a group of people or a, a tribe a family and if it continues then they move from care to universal care And this means that the person cares not just for their special group, but for all groups, for all humans, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. And then the highest stage we generally call integral, which tends to integrate and pull together all of the previous stages. So you can start to see how... Uh, just understanding these stages of development profoundly change what the religion claims to be offering. And it's very important because Vatican II itself finally acknowledged that other religious salvations could be comparable 
to the one that the Catholic Church offers. So that was the first move in almost 2,000 years from ethnocentric, we have the one and only true way to God, to world-centric. Uh, there are several different equally valid approaches to, to spiritual salvation. So these things change profoundly how we look at religion. And what makes them so important is that the more these ideas just sort of get out there, then the less religion becomes the laughing stock of modernity and post-modernity. And so given that, we have a way of actually bringing religion back into the postmodern world. And it could pick people up at whatever stage they're at. If they if they come in as children in the mythic in the in the magic stage and they're used to watching Saturday cartoons where the hero flies through the ball and, and you know and can raise the dead and can you know all of those things. That's fun. That's that's magic. That no problem with that. So that's Jesus. He's flying around and zapping people and you know all that kind of thing. Then as you move into mythic, then okay, then this is a chance to actually get across more enduring truths. Mm. And so what you get out of this is that your religion is going to be able to help you find certain kinds of truths that, that, that can help your life move forward. And then as it moves on into integral, then it's going to help tie all of these various views together and make them all legitimate and legitimately understood. So this conveyor belt is, is really important. And the thing is, we already have abundant amount of evidence supporting this. So James Fowler is only one example, did several books. One of them was called Stages of Faith. And he looked at Christian communities and he did a you know, developmental research tool and he found six major stages of growth that these Christians went through. And so it doesn't matter that if the, one of the middle stages that they go through is called the mythic literal, and that's sort of the dogmatic belief stage that the church is holding on to, it, you can see how individuals, because they're continuing to grow in their cognitive development and their moral development, then they're already interpreting their religion according to the higher stages of development that they're already at. So it's not like we're making this up and trying to force it on the church. We're saying, look around. It's already happening. People are already at every one of these six stages of development. What you need is a catechism. And the catechism has to say, okay, here's where we start with magic, Christianity. 
and it's fine. Come on in. You're you're excited in Christ walking on water and healing the dead, you know, being resurrected from death and um, every possible miracle that he's ever done. And we're saying, that's fine. Come in and enjoy that. Check it out. But then as they continue to grow and develop, then they're going to shift up into mythic. Now they're concerned of, okay, uh, what I want out of Jesus is, is what truths should I really try to be working my life around? Not just what miracles that can get me something or, uh, gosh, can I find a miracle way to get the job on Monday? If I pray, we, you know, give me this or get my wife pregnant or get me a new car or, you know, any of that. Right. No, wait, what truths can I depend on? that is going to help me live a better life and maybe get me into heaven. I'm sad. Now I'm worried about truth. I'm not worried about magic anymore. So help me with truth at this point. And so in comes ethnocentric truth. And, and, and that's what we teach at that stage of the conveyor belt. As they continue to start to get into something like teenage, adolescence, then fine. Say, let's look at how you're now using logic and truth to actually examine what are the important facts of this religion that I can now believe in. Now that I know about science, now that I know about logic, that can't be anti-God. Um, one Christian saint said, whatsoever is true, by whomsoever it is said, is from the Holy Spirit. Well, so that's fine. So Gautama Buddha says something, right? That's from the Holy Spirit. Parvasambhava says something that's true. That's from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter. There are, there are these forces moving through individuals come what may and if we want to give them a christian name and help christians get comfortable to okay wait a minute hindus are going to be in heaven with me all right okay i can do it i'll get used to it i can do it um but actually having the way they are interpreting their religion anyway Acknowledged by the church. And so it would become just as simple now as we have in any religious organization. The Masons, Buddhists, Kabbalah, Catholics, that you can go through different levels of training, levels of teaching. And as you do, it gets a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. Um, what you understand, how you're getting exposed to more and more truths. And that is uh, um, fantastic. And it fundamentally changes how we look at religion. Because it's, it's just, it's going from, again, these very sort of magic, egocentric, self-only, that's what I went out of religion, to ethnocentric. Uh, conformist group. Um, I want to do what's right 
for the group. I want to help that out. I want truth. I don't just want magic or self-consummating things. Tell me truth. And then you get up to, well, what's, what's world truth? Tell me how I can actually start thinking about that while still embracing my Christian views. You're not supposed to study other religions so you can throw over Christianity and embrace other religions. When you get into world-centric, you're supposed to study other religions because you can get great hints in terms of how you can practice your own religion. And if you decide you want to do centering prayer, or if you want to do the cloud of unknowing, or if you want to do St. Teresa's seven castles, fantastic. You can also study Buddha Gosha's manual for mindfulness, and you'll find an enormous number of helpful things in that. You don't have to do that. Right. But it becomes open, becomes available. So this changes everything because it takes religion from being frankly the laughing stock of the modern and postmodern world in right. just cases yeah. Noah's Ark it, no, it really got one of all 60,000 insects <laughs> on the Ark please don't even get me into viruses or bacteria but you could just realize, okay, wait, that's that's the magic. They, we go higher, we go into mythic, we go into rational, we go into pluralistic, we go into integral. And so all of a sudden, religion becomes a pacer of transformation. Mm-hmm. It actually takes people and says, okay, you ready? Here's the next stage. Here's the next stage. Here's the next stage. And it's actually moving them forward in an incredibly positive way so they can have their waking up experiences but they're going to be interpreting them from higher and higher levels of growing up of actual realities that promises to change everything that would be astonishing very exciting yeah, and, and I appreciate that. That's what immediately drew me to your work very early on in the likes of Ram Das as well as taking this broad view, you know, this integral, like let's let's lay it all out there and let's look at all of it. Let's not just throw one right. out there or the other. Um, so, you know, thank you for that. It's, for me, been very, very impactful and, and for countless others. So um, I did want to talk to you about We've got about 40, 45 minutes left, give or take. Um, but, but there are these two topics that I definitely wanted to get through with you before we're out of time. Sure. And the first one, um, we're going to start with trauma, addiction, and healing. And yeah. I would love to hear your perspective on the causes of trauma and addiction yeah. and how we can go about authentically healing ourselves you know, from these things. Because, uh, again, that's a lot of what we cover on this show and and after that we'll we'll move into a, a bit about shadow and relapse and potential relapse prevention um but yeah so if, if we could talk a little bit about that the trauma addiction and healing and uh, sure. i'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah and there were a couple of points i wanted to mention on that so let me just find yeah, of course yeah. um, a, a few things here um 
Um, okay, so. Yeah, so what um, we've been talking about the various levels of being and awareness and the and the way that they unfold in developmental stages. And this is the evidence for this is just overwhelming. I did a book called Integral Psychology, and in it I included charts of over 100 different developmental models, a hundred. Mm-hmm. And um, even though they're to be expected, you know, some differences here and differences there, some models had um, more than six stages, some models had less than six stages. But what you could see in all 100 of these was six to eight major stages of development that just sort of appeared over and over and over and over again. Um, Development is a very, very real process. And um, some developmental models have been tested in over 40 different cultures, including, get this, Amazon rainforest tribes. Australian Aborigines, Indianapolis housewives, Harvard professors, no exceptions found in any of those. Wow. These stages are real. And so that's what's so um, astonishing. So if we look at these stages, and these are stages that we find throughout nature. So we look at the most common holarchical stage unfolding in nature. It's quarks to atoms to molecules to cells to organisms. And each one of those levels transcends and includes its predecessor. So transcend means it goes beyond. It has you know a bigger truth, more expansive, more increasing. So molecules transcend atoms. They go beyond them. They have more truth, more perspectives, more embrace. But they also include them. They literally enwrap them. Atoms are, you know, the ingredients of molecules. So molecules don't hate atoms. They don't, uh, you know, loathe them and all that. If anything, they love them. They embrace them. They hug them. They include them. So, transcend and include is the primary nature of evolution itself. Um, Hegel was one of the first. Hegel said in his a little more obtuse way, um, to supersede, for him to transform, to supersede is at once to negate and to preserve. Now, What he meant by negate was to to go beyond it, to move beyond it, to transcend it. So when I'm negating something, it means I'm moving beyond its limitations. I'm transcending it. I'm becoming more. And then to preserve means, uh, but you're also including it. You're embracing it. You're carrying it forward. 
So his negate and preserve is transcend and include. And that's what evolution does. That's what all the developmental lives in a human being do. They transcend and include. So that means at any of these stages of development that humans have, because there's these two components, transcend and include, something can go wrong with either one of them. And when that happens, you develop a pathology. You develop a sickness. You develop something wrong. And so with the transcend, if something goes wrong with the transcend part, it means it doesn't really get to fully move beyond. It doesn't fully let go of. It remains fixated at the previous stage. It remains stuck in it in some ways. And so what that means is it's going to actually have an addiction. It's going to actually be addicted to some component of that stage that should have let go of. And that addiction is going to show up in all sorts of ways. It's going to be um, addicted to anything that reminds it of the original fixation, the original uh, addiction. Um, and, and that's going to be a very real problem. The person's going to find themselves, for reasons they can't understand at all, they're obsessing about these things. They they want to chase after them. They want to repeat experiences over and over and over. And so if you look at stages of development, as for example, to give you some very simple versions, food, sex, power, love, achievement, harmony, wholeness, unity. You can get addictions to food, bulimia, and, and, and well, actually, those are allergies. Addictions to food are just that, overeating. So uh, a person is still looking to sort of stuff themselves with food. We now have um, two-thirds of the American population is overweight, and fully one-third of them are clinically obese. Mm -hmm. This is serious. You can have an addiction to sex. And it, this used to sort of be made fun of, but then as we looked at it more and more, we saw that men really could get addicted to the release that sexual orgasm brought. Sure. And so we have that. You can become addicted to power and become just, you know, a power mad, um, crazed, insane uh, um, person. You can become addicted to love. And so wherever we have these developmental unfoldings, we can have these, these um, fixations and therefore addictions to some component that we should have been letting go of. We should you know, transcend and include. We should have very healthily let go of it, included it in a general loose way, and then moved on. So we get these extreme versions 
and that causes nightmares. Then you can also, on the include part, if you fail to do that correctly, then you fail to integrate the previous stage. You fail to actually embrace it. You fail to actually include it. It's like molecules refusing to include atoms in their makeup. This it, It's sick. It's a pathology. And so precisely because evolution, going all the way back to Big Bang, has this transcend and include, this transcend and include, transcend and include. And when that goes unhealthy, it could be making addictions and allergies, addictions and allergies, addictions and allergies. And those are um, truly problematic. Um, and they're very, very common. They happen all the time. And they're part of what we need to be paying very much attention to. So did you want to take that anyway? Because, Well, I mean, it sounds like it's segueing into, unless there's, you know, anything else we've missed it, but into kind of the shadow material, you know, the, the repressed yeah. and, 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 um, and then so we're acting out, you know, we're trying to find some comfort in this pain. And so we do turn to these things like food and sex and alcohol yeah. and drugs. Um, so that was something I definitely also wanted to, to ask you about was, you know, how the shadow works within the context of relapse again to, to whatever the substance yeah. is. Um, and then once we become aware of that, how can we use that to, to begin to really heal and, and, and change these patterns that we're caught in? Right. Unless there's anything else you still wanted to, you know, to, to include before we jumped into that. Part of the key to growth in general, including a therapeutic growth, mm -hmm. is that, um, and I had written this in, in 1978 in a book called The Allen Project. Yes. And two years later, Robert Keegan brought out a book called The Evolving Self. And he had the same thing. I had written in Allen Project um, seven things that mark development. One of them was the subject of one stage becomes the object of the subject of the next stage. And that's what Keegan said in, in uh, Evolving Self. So we've always been kind of you know, winking at each other and going, uh, yeah, we, that's, that's the central uh, notion. And, of course, I, Robert, thought of that first. And go, no, I thought of him. You know, we have an argument about that. Um, but it's true, because what, what that means is, as you watch these stages of development, what happens is that when a stage first comes in existence, we, we can use the chakras. Sure. When, when an individual steps up to the second chakra and identifies with it, then that's their subject. That's what they are. They're looking at the world from that second chakra. They can't look at it. They can't see it. They're using it with which to see the world. And so that's, it's become their subject. It's their self. They're identified with it. When they let go of that and move up to the third chakra, then they have let go of their identity with the second chakra. So now they can see it as an object. They're free of it. 
But now they become identified with the third chakra. Now they can't see that. That's where their self is. Now that's what they're acting from. And so as long as they're doing that, they're stuck with acting from power. And the self they can see, that, that's an object now. So they're aware of that. Now they have to wait until they turn that power into something that they can see, make it an object of awareness. And then once they do that, then it tends to let go. They're, they are free of it. They have transcended it. And so it's one of the reasons that mindfulness works so well with things like this is it just keeps seeing it as an object and then letting go. It sees it as an object and then lets it go. It sees it as an object. As long as you can't see it as an object, it remains a hidden subject. And that means it's, it can be split off as a sub-personality. That's a subject that can't be seen. When you have a sub-personality, you don't know it. It's looking at the world. You can't look at it. Right. If you could look at it, you wouldn't be identified with it. Mm. It would be an object. It'd no longer be yourself, your subject. And so the whole trick to development is that the subject of one stage becomes the object of the subject of the next stage. And then the subject of that stage becomes the object of the subject of the next higher state. So you're, you're, you're disidentifying with, you're getting rid of all of those until you get all the way up to pure subjectivity that can never become an object. And that's generally known as purusha or the real self or the pure self. And it's just a vast open emptiness because you can never see it as an object. So it's the pure seer. It's pure awareness itself, not any content of awareness. And when you fall into that, you're radically free of all content. So you're resting as the witness. I see the mountain. I'm not the mountain. I have these sensations. I'm not these sensations. I have these feelings. I'm not these feelings. I have these thoughts. I'm not these thoughts. I'm the pure witness of all of them. And that's known. The discovery of that freedom is known everywhere as the great liberation. That's how you become free of all of these things. So that becomes central. That's a real part of an overall development um, that takes us into wider and wider and wider expanses of pure freedom and pure awareness. And that's what's wild about Right, because yeah, in that stage, who is left to be addicted or you know to to struggle? It's as you've written, it's I amness. You know, it's just this sense of being. There's no more. So, so that being the case, then how how can we take working towards that or working with that and use it in a way for those who have struggled or do struggle? You know, with any form of addiction, whatever it may be. How how can we work with that um, 
so as to really begin to to heal and not just like a band-aid healing but a real you know deep healing right well part of what happens unfortunately with an addict is that it starts generally with something in the upper left that's say something in the interior awareness of an individual and in one of those stages it ends up fixated to some aspect that it can't let go of Mm -hmm. and so as then the next stage sort of emerges in this hidden underground way there's an obsessive lust for this thing that we're identified, we don't want to let go of that. And so that becomes just a seed that gets more and more thirsty, more and more hungry for whatever it is that it's lusting after. And then what starts happening in the upper right quadrant brain is that these start to get hooked up whenever you're producing this sort of addictive thrust in the upper left, it starts to have a correlate in the upper right. It starts to release hormones, dopamine, serotonin, any of these hypercritical, hyperpleasure releasing Events. And just to clarify again, I'm sorry, upper left meaning our in, our interior and upper right, you said it was brain. Is that correct? Right. Just right. clear for the audience. Thank you. Okay. And so, so part of the problem there becomes that you have this really unbelievably intense pleasure release connected with these fixated lusted after addicted uh, facets that we actually have in our psyche that we can't really let go of, that we've invested with an enormous amount of, of attention and drive and desire and identification. And when that hooks up with its corresponding brain release, that, that forms a, a, a kind of dual unit that can become incredibly hard to break into. That's just a start because we have not only a predisposition in the upper left, something went wrong developmentally to hook somebody in this way. And then in the upper right, that starts responding to with a release of drugs themselves are incredibly addictive. And now you have the lower quadrants as well. And those start to come apart just as fast as the addict, you know, sort of needs more and more money and starts to rearrange its world. It stops, it slowly over a period of time, cuts out almost everything in the lower right quadrants. It cuts out friendship. It cuts out work. Uh, It cuts out most forms of relationship. It starts to center its human interaction with a group of 
people that they share the drugs with. And whether they love them or not, they're attracted to them because that's where they get to do this activity. And that group forms an intensely real part of the addict's life. They really become attached to that group. So all of a sudden, you have all four quadrants that are activating the addiction. And so you have brain chemistry that's just getting completely off the wall and it's pumping out, pumping out more and more addictive reinforcement. You have lower right quadrant that is just becoming disastrous. It's funding, financing, where to get the next hit, how to afford for that. Where am I going to crash? Where am I going to live? These things all become uh, unbelievably important. And then the lower left itself, it's like, what does a friend even mean anymore? I've, I've, I've trashed so many friendships. What I wanted out of them was money. What I wanted out of them was something that would get me into my primary drug community. And, and it, it's just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. And fairly soon, in a matter of a year or so, you have an addict's life that normally has dozens and dozens of relationships. They're all reduced to maybe four or five relationships. So where do I get my next hit? How do I pay for it? Where am I going to crash? What am I going to do for trying to repair something resembling friendship? And that becomes kind of secondary as, as the addict is brought up in this new world that it finds itself. This new world community is its life. And it's based around where do I get it? How do I get it? How much do I pay? And where do I crash? And that becomes the whole world of the addict sometimes. Right. They don't think beyond that. Right. And when you have that many quadrants so aggressively aiding the addictive act, it's almost it's the worst possible thing you can think of to prevent any sort of actually doing something. Right. It's hard to think of something so wired everywhere as to make it just almost impossible to do anything about it. And what starts to happen at some point, which is just horrifying, is that it's more and more confrontation with death. And the person, you know, near dies, has a near death, more and more, and then finally, at some point, it's the last option. They say, do this one more time, I'm gonna die. Or I can try this and maybe I've got a chance. And sometimes that can be the one slow step, small time, small time, small time, that they take to start to get their life back. But the 
incredibly hard part about that is getting their life back now means getting everything back. You have to learn how to brush your teeth again. You have to learn how to dress again. You have to learn how to eat cereal again. You have to learn how to drive. You have to learn what friendship means. How do you treat people? You have to learn what love means. It's a hor- probably the, one of the most horrifying and cruel things that can happen to human beings that we have ever seen yeah. uh, historically. It's, it's, it's nightmarish. Yeah. And I have to tell any of this. But isn't it that increasing, sort of suffocating everything? Yeah, it literally yeah. leaves an individual feeling completely imprisoned, completely, yeah. I mean, quite literally a slave to what they're dealing with. I mean, speaking yeah. from my own experience, and I've written about this, but I, there, there have been a number of times where I've had a bottle in my hand or I've been looking at a line of powder on the table and cried because I did not want to do it. But it yeah. was beyond my capacity at that point to stop myself. You know, and that's where a lot of people who have not been in those shoes don't understand. And they think, oh, you're just a weak-willed person or you're morally deficient. And, and I, I can understand how some people might think that maybe they've had a loved one who's struggled and they, they don't know how to deal with it. So they just kind of project, you know, their anger and frustration onto that person. But that's not the case at all. You know, it's like you said, it is absolutely horrible. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. It's, 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 it's sad. And, and those of us who do get lucky enough, like you were saying, to have the near death experience without the actual death part then that starts a whole new chapter and yes, relearning everything. And then the reestablishing relationships and, and forgiveness and not just seeking forgiveness of others. But in my case, one of the most difficult things was learning to forgive myself. And that's yeah. something I, you know, I still work very hard on cause yeah. it's, it's, it's a struggle. Um, yeah. so, well, thank you for sharing all of that. You know, it, 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 uh, it certainly helps. Um, we have about 10 to 15 minutes left. And what I like to do with that, Ken, is, you know, I there are a number of topics that I sent you, um, any of which I would be more than happy to discuss because, you know, I find them all fascinating. Is there one that you would you would like to discuss, especially since we have I mean, in each one of these, I know we could talk about for hours in and of yeah. themselves. So I don't want to shortchange you and your teaching. Um but is there one particular that you'd like to, to close on or anything in general that, that you want to close on? Maybe that it, I, I didn't even send you as far as topics. One of the things that I find so extraordinary and so potentially an overwhelming change for absolutely the better is the possibility, at, at least the possibility, that religion is now facing in terms of how it's interpreted and what it does and what we can see it doing. Because there are, we have learned so many things over the last 2,000 years about how the human mind works, about how human transformation works, about how peak experiences and altered states of consciousness have something profound to say. We've learned a lot about those 
And so if we look back at the New Testament, for example, and we say, okay, this is clearly almost all sort of theologians and everybody involved now recognizes, okay, the New Testament wasn't really written directly by God himself. It was written by individuals who were deeply inspired by God. And for that, we can learn enormous things. So then the question becomes, and, 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 and what we see in the New Testament are individuals that have a kind of a, a, a background of the common wisdom in that culture at that time, and that were inspired by God at that time to write down how they saw things, how they interpreted things, what they meant. And one of the really crucial topics that the New Testament talks about is transformation, uh, a change in consciousness. St. Paul says, let this consciousness be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. Now, that's about as perfect a summary of enlightenment or awakening as, as you can come up with. So, okay, wow. So, so that was uh, often referred to as, as metamorphosis, particularly when the uh, um, early Gospels were written down, as most of them were in Greek. The Greek term was metamorphosis. Um, and that's what, that's what we were interested in. And, of course, the New Testament itself is born in just a riot of mystical experiences. I mean, there are doves and flames of fire. There's, you know, Christ goes into the River Jordan, has a profound transformation, comes out, sees dove coming down. He changed whatever happened in that river. And then he goes up on the mountain, has a transfiguration. Something changed. I mean, what's going on here? Whatever those things are, those are important to take into account. Let's really look at those. And so we notice the things that, of course, weren't included in the New Testament. Um, but things like, you know, DNA and kidney transplants and you know, batteries and Telsa motor cars and, you know, robotics and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, the question is, well, we can see how none of those really would direct these change or would affect these change in consciousness that people are having. So maybe they don't apply all that much, but have we learned anything about metamorphosis in the past thousand, two thousand years that if it was known at the time the New Testament was written, it would have been included by these people because they recognized it as being so important. It's a legitimate question. What could this be? Because the answer is almost certainly yes. 
we have learned an enormous bit about transformation of human consciousness. And if you look at mysticism as a fundamental psychotechnology of consciousness transformation, it's not a belief system, oh, believe in the Nicene Creed and I get to live forever with God. I mean, that might be important, but that's not what these change in consciousness are about. Those are about directly experiencing Christ, they're directly experiencing spirit, not just signing on the bottom line and looking forward to living in some mythic heaven with all the other boring people for the rest of your life. It was actually changing your awareness so that not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's what this is about. And that's what makes Christianity such a profound, important religion that will stand up with Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism or Kabbalah or any of them. It's the power of love to change you in a way that you recognize God as your core. You can't get much deeper than that. So are there any things that we've learned over the past, you know, thousand, two thousand years that would help us understand this transformation process, this growth, this amazing thing? And it turns out that, yeah, we've learned quite a few things. And the more we look at them in relation to religion, the more the people that actually do this don't find that it hurts religion or detracts from religion, but profoundly helps explain it and expand it and make it even more believable. And so this has to do with, with um, some of the things that we mentioned very briefly, but some of these growth um, processes end up moving people from egocentric into ethnocentric, into world-centric, into integral, all reality. And these are profound and true developmental pathways. And it becomes really clear what's important is that we have people that are identified, you know, just with egocentric, and, and which is fine, it's a place to start. But then there are the people that are ethnocentric, and they're the ones that think, we're the only ones that have the one true way, um, our way is real, all the others are wrong, this is the one true way, this would be the uh, belief that would energize the crusades and the jihads and the, you know, let's kill them. And we see a lot of this in the Old Testament and over 600 passages, God tells his people to directly murder their enemies. By the time we get to the New Testament, Christ says, uh, lots of enemies. And that's like, ooh, okay, let's deal with that. Um, so, so being able to move this Christian movement as it was growing from its ethnocentric, you know, just Jewish thing to a, a, a Gentile, a universal and all-embracing stance, that's crucial. 
and, and that remains crucial to today. And it depends, as we look at these developmental components, it depends on us being able to ex keep expanding this identity from egocentric into ethnocentric into world-centric into integral. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, developmental psychology itself over the past two, three hundred years has learned an enormous number of things that you can do to help that growth and development. And so we want to be able to help two types of growth, not just the one that was understood 2,000 years ago, but another one which is really only discovered 100 years ago. So it didn't have time to get put into the New Testament when it was written. But it has to do with, well, the old timey one is what we call waking up. I mean, the central process of waking up to a consciousness that is not me, but Christ liveth in me, and that lets his consciousness be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, that we all may be one. I mean, these profound transformations are clearly what salvation is mostly dealing with. It's not dealing with some legalistic, yeah, I agree this, and yeah, I believe the Virgin Mary was there. Those, you know, that's fine, and, and you're, you're perfectly allowed to believe that if it helps your overall, you know, stance. But it doesn't change your consciousness in the way that metanoia depends on. And metanoia was what you were after in the New Testament. Change consciousness to find Christ. And so we now know that there are both of these developmental sequences. One is what we call waking up, and that has us moving towards you know greater and greater awakening, waking up, metamorphosis, metanoia, experiences. And then the other is how we interpret those experiences. Because those tend to run from, you know, ethnocentric, uh, egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integral. And so you want to be sure that we're helping people develop through both of these sequences. Because both of them clearly relate directly to our spiritual understanding. Mm -hmm. And so this is why we want to be able to say, okay, let's, let's at least look at these. These are important. And there's no reason we can't do that right now. There's no reason we can't develop a conveyor belt and it helps people interpret, you know, whatever they feel is really important to them about Christianity right now. If they feel that the magic component is really important and they want to believe that Christ can raise the dead or maybe Christ can cure my illness, that's not wrong. We're not saying don't do that. We're saying, yes, do it. Focus on that. But when you get done with that, you might find that you're looking for something that is, is of a broader appeal, that lasts longer, that helps you understand how to interact with other people. And so those are the beliefs, the covenants, the Ten Commandments, the whatever it is that we want to use to learn how to make 
true social contract and, and, and get along well with each other. And then we can go even further into a world center where we start to say, wait a minute, is it really true that God only appeared to a small nomadic tribe in the desert of Palestine and everybody else is going to hell? That, that isn't, maybe that's not right. Maybe that, you know, it means, okay, wait, oh, whatever is true by whomsoever it is said is from the Holy Ghost. Therefore, let us look at all of these religions as the religion of humankind with God, you know, the source of all of it, and appreciate these wonderful kinds of differences that they gave us and start to find room for all of them. That makes an extraordinary change because as long as we're ethnocentric, you know, subtly at each other's throat, I've got the one true way, you're going to burn in hell. That drops as we get into world-centric. And it's sort of like, okay, how can we learn from each other? How can we appreciate? That doesn't mean I have to stop being Christian. I believe Christianity, a Christian is perfectly free to say, I believe Christianity is the very best way for me. I don't believe it's the best way for the world. Sure. It is the very best way for me, and I love it, and I love Jesus, and that's you know that's the way it is. That's absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. We're also acknowledging that there are people that feel that way about Gautama Buddha or Mahatma Harshi or Padmasambhava or Lady Sakya, right. and so that really opens that up. And in just the broadest sense that we call that conveyor belt. It's just to help pick people up at magic and mythic stages of religion and help move them into world-centric and integral stages. At that point, they become pacers of world peace because they're all realizing that they have something important together. Whereas when they're down in this ethnocentric jihad, formation, they're at each other's throats. We have this extraordinary paradox that religion is both perhaps the single greatest cause of warfare, torture, and murder that humans have ever known. And yet it's also, almost undeniably, the great source of love and compassion and loving kindness well, how can both of those be true? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, if you're in an ethnocentric, fuck you attitude, that's going to give murder and jihad and all that. If you had a world-centric embrace all, that's going to give a genuine love and concern and care for everybody. Mm-hmm. Now it makes sense. And, and right now, when we have people talk about religion, they almost always pick just one or just the other. Oh, it's the source of all love in the middle. I love it all. Nothing is wrong with it. It's all wonderful. And then the other group is, oh, please, it all sucks. Every single part of it. Both of them are clearly partially true and partially very not 
true. And so by seeing how we have these developmental growing up stages mixed with these waking up stages, religion all of a sudden becomes a real force in the modern and postmodern world. It actually has something to show us. And that's amazing. So that's what I want to say. (laughs) I love it. And that's why I'm so excited for for your forthcoming book, The Religion of Tomorrow, as well as all your books that that precede that one. Um, You know, they they all, in, in one way or another, you know, do a wonderful job of saying or shining a light on what you were just talking about. So as I said in the beginning, Ken, um, thank you, you know, personal thank you and, and just a huge global thank you, you know, for the work that you're, you've done or continuing to do. Um, so grateful and words really do fail to convey. Uh, I'm kind of tripping over them right now, but just a, a sincere heart. Thank you for everything. Bless you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.